Welcome to another edition of Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray here as always. And today I'm joined by a guest who I've been kind of secretly telling my friends about. And I was pretty excited to get on. And that is Michael Johns, who is the co-founder of the Tea Party Movement, the Tea Party um, Party, I guess is the kind of weird way to say it, but former White House speechwriter for George H.W. Bush, heritage, heritage, heritage policy analyst, um, and a litany of other things in his bio. He's been um, all over... <laughs> policy stuff and i will link to all that in the show notes um if you're not familiar with his work it's great to have you on michael how are you doing hey ryan it's a pleasure nice to connect with you okay so let's start off i mentioned the tea party um yep. let's, let's start there because it's kind of it's been what over over a decade now since that kind of got going and mm-hmm. you, you hear sure. about it some but a lot of the tea party i'm gonna say heroes if you were or champions They've kind of moved on. The movement moved on. So what was kind of the impetus and walk us through from your perspective? Yeah, I don't think it really is moving on. I mean, so let's just sort of start with the beginnings of this, which are what I think so many people are intrigued by. And I find myself spending a disproportionate amount of time explaining because let's face it, um, there's been a lot of uh, laudable efforts to try to launch influential grassroots movements most Mm -hmm. of them are unsuccessful or if they are successful you know kind of attract you know a modest number of people um and have modest degrees of success the tea party movement by way of metrics is the largest and most politically influential grassroots political movement unaffiliated with a campaign in the history of this country period bigger than even the civil rights and anti-Vietnam war movements, though I would, in fairness to them, say I think we benefited from some of the technologies that they didn't have available at that time, or they could have potentially been even larger than they were. But so so here's how it goes. Um, it's just simple. 2008, obviously, um, many of us who are politically engaged and educated are acutely aware that Barack Obama um is running you know a campaign as some sort of mainstream political figure who will actually unite the country but those of us who have looked at his track record with any degree of scrutiny were were very aware he was the furthest member furthest left member of the u.s senate at that time had very limited experience his primary experience was that of association with you know, radicals in on the left in the Chicago political scene, uh, really incredibly um, radical individuals, including some who had been engaged even in domestic terrorism. He had a, you know, first 30 years of his life that were very difficult to even track or, or grasp. He seemed to be um, um, infatuated, and you can see this even in his autobiographies, which I doubt he wrote. Um, about his infatuation with far left Marxist and even anti-American uh, ideology. So we knew, you know, should this guy win, we were in for a fight. And should he win and have control of the House and Senate, uh, he was going to have a green light to maybe be one of the more influential far left political forces in the history of the country. And that's precisely where we found ourselves in January of 2009. Then in February of 2009, um, I had been managing investor relations for this large Fortune 1000 company and had been in the habit of watching CNBC in the morning just by chance. 
caught the Rick Santelli rant, which is now iconic. Um, and we had a small email list of conservative activists from around the country. I wouldn't say these were people that even really particularly knew each other all that well, but we all kind of shared the same understanding and perspective about trying to preclude the country from moving in ways that were unconstitutional or were disproportionately, you know, big government, big tax approaches that would stifle America's greatness. And that's so when I found this, you know, we circulated it in this email list and uh, we proposed getting a conference call together to talk about it, which, you know, I'm not, sometimes you can waste a lot of time on talking, but it seemed like an important time to do that. So we, you know, we had, I don't know, 12, 15 people on this call uh, outside of myself. I don't think anyone on that call had any political or public policy experience to my knowledge. Um, but they had an enormous degree of, of understanding about the dangerous political situation we were in. And we committed to organizing these rallies on April 15, 2009, around the country. Well, you know, originally we have, you know, 12, 15 people, your capacity is, uh, is decent, but it's not unlimited, right? So we have uh, you know, a few dozen of these rallies organized in some of the major cities of the country. And as the word starts to get out that we're organizing them, the phone just starts ringing off the hook for all of us with interest from others who wanted to do rallies in their perspective cities or people who wanted to do even larger rallies than we had envisioned, which required changing permits to other locations and things like that. I mean, it was nonstop positive uh, affirmations from the grassroots of this country that they were looking for an avenue for political engagement, which points to a deficiency I think in the country right now is that most Americans concerned about the future of their country want to be involved. And when they go to seek a venue for involvement struggle, because the Republican party, which I've been a member of since the age of 18 um, and have voted for diligently, regardless of whether they were candidates I was hugely enthusiastic about or modestly enthusiastic about really doesn't offer that. And uh, we were offering that. And so from those rallies, which were that day attended by, you know, a small seven figure number of people attracted extraordinary global, global media attention, uh, propelled this amazing movement where now we, you know, reconvened these calls, talked about, okay, what next? It was like, well, let's do some more rallies, which we did. Um, and ultimately by the spring of um, 09, we were talking about a political movement that would um, seek to take back, as I worded it pretty boldly, I think I labeled it more boldly than others. And I recall just to be totally transparent about this, uh, which I am. I mean, I'm not for all of the great things we did and some of the things I wish we could do better. I said, look, nobody's going to be inspired by small goals. Um, as much as that might make sense. They want to, they are going to gravitate to big ideas. So this is, you know, uh, Kennedy to the moon time, you know, as far as inspiring the country, which meant we needed to, so my verbiage publicly um, was we are going to take back this country. And um, I, you know, am a person that very, um, confident and bold in 
as it relates to public policy, but I'm also very acutely sensitive to responsible to the responsibility. So meaning like when I say something is A, uh, I don't ever want to have the reputation of misleading people or over speaking or misspeaking. Um, I think it's part of the responsibility that comes with anyone in public life is whatever your perspective is to be a person that's credible. And so I was aware as I'm speaking to you, I don't, I hope we can do this. I think we can do this, but I don't know for sure. But I knew it was necessary to inspire what we needed to do to, to prevail. So sure enough, 2010, we put up over 60 Tea Party affiliated members of Congress, take the gavel out of the hands of Nancy Pelosi. 2012, Mitt Romney um, chooses to be blunt not to work with the Tea Party movement. I think his professional consultant class that he surrounded himself with felt it was unnecessary that we were all going to vote for him anyway. But, you know, in failing to attract that level of activist engagement and enthusiasm for his campaign, I think he probably blew the opportunity of a winnable election. But we come back in 2014 and I say, look, this U.S. Senate uh, is important for judicial confirmations, et cetera. Um, and, we, and that's the next target. We take, take the Senate in 14. Um, we, you know, in turn, when you think about the, the individuals who've come out of this movement, um, you know, uh, Mark Meadows, Mike Pompeo, uh, Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, uh, Mike Lee, um, Marco Rubio, you know, really some of the more prominent figures in the broad conservative movement owe their political careers to grabbing on to the momentum that we established in this movement. So now we have the House, we have the Senate, but we still don't have the White House. And at this point, Obama, as you probably are acutely aware of, is jabbing with us publicly, uh, taking issue with us at rallies, saying, I'd be happy to meet with the Tea Party movement. But of course, we actually took him up on that just uh, as a matter of record. He had, they had no, it was all political bluster. He had no sincerity at all behind much of anything he said to anyone, and including as it related to us. And um, the, um, you know, we start to set our sights on 2016, but therein lies like one of the first problems we, we hit the wall on is because we were so influential in Ted Cruz's election, so influential in Rand Paul's inspiration to run in his election, so influential in Marco Rubio's election at the time, even though it, that some of that history may be forgotten when you think back about that race. Um, for people that are new to politics, I think they get to know someone on a personal level and that builds the trust. And um, all of these guys are, are nice guys. You know what I mean? Like you always hear somebody new to it say, oh, I met them and they're such a nice person. Well, yeah, that's why they're like in this field and successful at it. But I really felt and a few other founding members felt that it was not, but, you know, I'm talking about maybe a fourth of our total founders felt that Trump um, brought, it, as I saw it, two things that were, and I worded it this way at the time, and unpopularly worded it this way at the time, two things that were necessary. One was an outside the beltway perspective, meaning individuals who had been inside the beltway, inside the swamp, 
um, and learned the game and how it's played there, we're not going to be predisposed to bring the magnitude of passion and sweeping change that we needed. And then secondly, um, there were three issues that I have felt have emerged since the Reagan era that were new to the conservative agenda. One was the threat of communist China, uh, which might be the biggest issue now of our lifetimes. Two is the immigration effect, both legal and illegal immigration, not just illegal immigration, but also these irrational legal immigration programs, uh, visa lotteries and things like this, where we just sort of bring people in chaotically without any strategy whatsoever. Obviously, they compete with Americans for jobs. They deflate wages, um, a lot of detrimental components to it, and uh, no real standards of metrics opposed to it. And then finally, were, were our trade agreements where we were running these hugely, uh, China being the best example, but not the only one. Uh, the, the NAFTA agreement, as Trump pointed out, was another good example of trade agreements that were represented as free trade when we launched them. And I guess we're free trade from our standpoint, but not from the, the, the trading partners perspective. So that we were running these great trade deficits What you see saw a hollowing out of the, of the uh, rust belt of our country. Um, I come from that area, grew up in the Lehigh Valley area of Pennsylvania. I started to see it in the 1980s and the, the astounding ripple effect that it had through these communities, not just the obvious things of people losing their jobs, but the effects that it had through families, the effects it had in um, even psychological, you know, challenges that, that kids and others had, uh, divorce levels increasing, um, drug abuse, the opioid crisis itself has been influenced greatly by much of this and uh, decimating these communities. And they would always come in and try to put a positive spin on it and you know, talk about the fact that these jobs were gone. This was just part of some natural evolution in the economy. And of course it's not, you know, I was looking at the steel industry lately and it's you know, essentially like tripled or quintupled in its market size since that era. Uh, we just aren't a beneficiary of it. So those, all those issues led me to endorse Trump on day one. And um, I think uh, Trump and Trump alone deserves credit for that victory. I always say that um, he's he's a unique man among among Americans. I mean, an an incredibly underestimated man in a lot of respects too. Uh, but I hope that I I lend it. I think a lot of a lot of credibility to conservatives um, who would have been immediately discounting of his candidacy. Some of whom were anyway. And, but ultimately, you know, we know the, the history of how that played out. He beats um, 16 other candidates in the primary, some of the, you know, the most refined and well-funded uh, opponents you could possibly identify, including Jeb Bush, and, um, and goes on in one of the most incredible upsets, being outspent by the top political class in the world in the Clinton machine to win the presidency. Okay, so you, you covered a lot of ground there. Let me kind of go back and just ask a couple of questions. First, from your perspective, do you think the Tea Party movement, would you view it as a successful? Is it still ongoing? Because you, kind of, you kind of pushed back when I said maybe it's done. Um, so unpack that. And then two, how do you think about, as a member of the Tea Party, because I remember the Tea Party, I remember coming up, and I remember getting mad. I know a congressional staffer who's a Repub on a Republican uh, congressman. 
And he would kind of bemoan the fact that Tea Party candidates were winning because they couldn't win the state election, he would think. And I, I was like, I don't care. Well, and that's wrong. That's wrong. <laughs> I was like, I don't care. But, but my point was, I don't care. I want to vote for the person who I believe actually represents my my thoughts, my movements, my beliefs, not who I think can win the national elective. Um, so when you look at McCain and Romney, they're, in my opinion, pretty abysmal conservative Republicans. Um, um, and so then you have Trump. We can talk about him in a second. He's, he's a different animal, as you, as you mentioned. But so how do you work through that? First, was it successful? Where's the party now? And then two, how do you balance calling being a conservative and dealing with these candidates who have very little, I would say, in um, uh, in, in, uh, in the way of conservatism? Well, my view is that the 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 final chapters on this book have not yet been written, and and the um, very almost universally negative uh, developments of the past year or two have us right back to we were in 09. But does that mean, I mean, the one thing I we need to keep in mind because it, it both is an inspiring fact and it's part of historical truth is that had you given Obama eight years with a green light in the House and Senate to rubber stamp his legislation, many of the things we're now trying to hold at bay would, would have been in effect already. I mean, we knew he wanted, even though he did, said he didn't, a single-payer health care system. Obamacare, one of the reasons it's so incredibly flawed is it was never set up as a permanent solution by them. It was designed to pressure private uh, insurers and to push them really out of the business to create this artificial demand for a public system so the people themselves would be calling for it. It was a very sophisticated political undertaking. It was a horrifically structured actual healthcare plan and really you can't even call it healthcare because with the amount of money people were paying uh, for premiums and out-of-pocket uh, deductibles. And then you, I think, have to look at the fact that um, while we have huge issues in front of us, an administration that is not working, you know, that comes in, Biden gives this incredibly insincere inaugural speech about unite, uniting, but their definition of unity is is agreeing with their agenda. I mean, and if you don't want to agree with that agenda, then you're you're disuniting, you're a divisive force. They've really redefined, we've allowed them to redefine a lot of language. Uh, even this language of conspiracy theory, which used to be used to explain the most seemingly irrational and inconceivable ideas, they've now used to label anything that just kind of deviates from their agenda. So uh, we were told, for instance, that the idea that the pandemic was released from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which was, has been my thesis operating and an educated thesis, I'm not just spewing it. I mean, based on my sources and, and um, considerable uh, insight on this was, you know, incredibly labeled a conspiracy thing. Well, now yesterday we have the director of national intelligence from Mar from uh, May of uh, 2020 through the end of the administration. So the, the chunk of time most critical in the pandemic come out and affirm in an op in an op-ed in Fox News that uh, there's almost no doubt it came out of the of, of the Wuhan Institute of Virology as part of their gain of function research. And we had most, maybe most importantly, this uh, House Foreign Affairs um, minority staff put out their 
80-some page report, I believe, which um, I read yesterday that concludes, no doubt, came out of the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And uh, according to Mike McCall, the um, ranking minority member there, the Chinese Communist Party is engaged in the largest cover-up in human, what he called the largest cover-up in human history. Now, when you release a report like that, of this significance, and then you issue public commentary on it, um, it's true that many members of Congress may not think too much before they open their mouths, but that's a studied statement that I think he um, was trying to convey the magnitude, you know, of, of um, you know, what we're talking about now, over 4 million dead globally and trillions of dollars of damage to the global economy, over well over 20 trillion to our own economy, all because Xi Jinping chose not to be forthcoming, covered up, kept the World Health Order. So all these things um, are realities that we're going to need to overcome. I believe we're in a position where two issues linger and need to be resolved before we can even have the foundation on which to build. Number one, November three, um, they you know you read mainstream media and they can say that this elect that allegations of of uh, improprieties of fraud are baseless, groundless, conspiratorial again conspiratorial. But is that what's really playing out? You have the Navarro reports, three editions that I've read and and thousands of affidavits, some of which I've read and some of the whistleblowers whom I've spoken with. And you've got state legislatures accountable to the people in Arizona, in Georgia, and now in Pennsylvania, all of whom are initiating uh, and or trying to initiate forensic audits because they see that this is not at all baseless. It's very credible. How that plays out I don't know. I don't like the way it's particularly being approached or organized. That's a very imperfect system. I don't think courts are predisposed to be proactive on this stuff, but we need to have the country comfortable, whatever the outcome, you know, whether whether this affirms but that Biden is legitimate, won the election, um, and that we're we're comfortable as people who voted for Trump. Or conversely, we start uh, um, correcting both the popular vote and possibly the electoral college vote. But none of those things have happened. I mean, you have documentable cases of people who voted who aren't even residents of their state any longer. And um, no one's backed those votes out of the popular vote. No one's held those people accountable. I don't know what the statute stipulates as far as what the the ramifications are. It's, I don't know if it's a jailable offense, but it's a, you know, it's an, it's a crime. Um, and it's not being addressed as such, unfortunately, by the uh, federal law enforcement agencies that are tasked with it and have the resources to address it. And uh, I think the Republican National Committee has been a complete disappointment. I mean, I don't, I don't, I couldn't even tell you what, say, Ronna McDaniel's view is as it relates to the Navarro reports. Uh, the RNC, frankly, should have been written, writing the Navarro reports, not the trade advisor to the president, as smart of a man as he is, and he's one of the smartest men in our movement today, Peter Navarro, I think very highly of him. That needs to get resolved. And then this issue of holding China accountable, okay? So yesterday, you get the DNI and, and the study, a very in-depth report that's been, you know, had access to all the intel, concluding... Yes, 
Uh, this came out of the Wuhan Institute. It didn't, you know, it didn't come out of some wet lab. That, that itself was really the conspiracy theory. When you think about the absurdity of bats that would have come from a province almost a thousand miles away, uh, and then just so happened to, um, you know, affect individuals uh, either in the Wuhan Institute or within like a mile or two uh, radius of it. That and holding uh, China accountable financially and otherwise for this needs to be addressed. And I would put in there the genocide. I mean, we have two to three million Uyghurs being held in concentration camps. If you ever in your life said never again, rhetorically, as related to the Holocaust, and I don't like to compare anything to the Holocaust because it was a particular set of circumstances, a particular set of people, and a particular generation, but one of the great, there's anything positive that came out of it aside from affirming American ability to right these wrongs, it was this promise we all collectively made that we'd never allow it to happen again. It's happening again right now. And um, I'm not seeing the seriousness being brought to it. So I see a movement right now on our side. It's not functioning as a movement. It's not rising to the moment on the major challenges. And there's a lot of timidity as it relates to confronting that reality. Because in politics, no one wants to really speak negatively, particularly of people on their side and in, in, in the public domain. But at a moment of national crisis, you need, you need to start by speaking truth. Um, and so it's not personal, it's not partisan, but we need to come to grips with some of these realities and, and address and fix them. And as we do that, and particularly as I think the Tea Party and MAGA movements are predisposed to lead that effort, um, that's the next logical chapter of this. And then you have to also conclude that so many of these great leaders that we have, you know, the few that we have, not many of them, but the ones that we do have, have um, kind of spawned from the Tea Party movement's creation, may not have ever entered politics were it not for the Tea Party movement, that that we, we've kind of graduated and the metrics are different. So you go from kind of like these large public events that are very easily identifiable to, you know, the reality of governing and uh, and political strategies and, and uh, the challenges therein, and that's not as quite as publicly evident. So people say, hey, it's kind of slowed down. And well, it's not really, it's just evolved. Okay, so let's talk about, um, you hit a lot there, let's talk about China. So one of the things that I, I wrote in, um, I don't know, last summer, basically bemoaning the fact that Trump and insert big country here with spy agencies, would not release what our spy agencies were telling us in November, December, even October of 2019. And for me, it's it's so hard now when you hear someone say, well, we knew all this back then, or this is what we always believed. You know, the, it's it's hard to get the trust back when you lose it. And listen, I, my, my stance on COVID has been the same since day one, which, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a libertarian, so I, I would say I'm not much for any kind of government intervention, but if you're going to do something you know, pick an age, 60, 55 and up, subsidize them for a few months, people on the organ donor list, whatever, highly, you know, the people that were at risk, that was clearly by the time I got to the U.S., anyone who's fallen it should have known that's what was going on. Um, that's secondary to what the U.S. government thought they knew. But this game that Trump tried to play of being able to convince people, this is what we think. And then he's telling Bob Woodward this, 
it's it's so frustrating. And so when you want to hear now, well, yeah, we think it's from the Wuhan lab. It, quite possibly. I have no idea. Why does government officials who claim to be conservative, claim to want transparency, continue to fail at the basic fundamentals? That's why they keep losing the trust of the people. If they would just do what they say they're going to do. Yeah, that's really that simple. The problem is it's that simple rhetorically. Um, and, you know, so if your promise is I'm going to drain the swamp, which was one of maybe three or four key foundational promises that Trump made in 16 that gave him the presidency, um, you got to be acutely tuned in to the need to overhaul the staffing of the federal government. The problem then is once you get into the federal government, everyone has an argument that they're engaged in this or that multi-year sensitive project and that they're irreplaceable. So in the ideal world, the alphabet agencies that comprise this possibly vastly too big, frankly, uh, Intel network of ours. Way too big. 16 agencies or whatever. I mean, that's, um, you, you almost create a dynamic where, where internal conflict and lack of consensus becomes logical when you have that many people involved from that many different perspectives. Um, that was the case as related to, you know, post, um, you know, when once it became clear that the, let's just, if you walk through January of 2020, you know, so we become aware patient zero emerges in the state of Washington, uh, who had been in Wuhan. Trump, to his credit, moves right away and wants to deploy the CDC into Wuhan to look at the core of this problem where it emerged and look into the institute. And Xi Jinping says, no, you're not, we're, not, we're not allowing your people in. And then you think, well, the World Health Organization, China being a participating member, is obligated to accept that. Uh -huh. They say no to the World Health Organization, which it subsequently turns out they've been more or less running and controlling for their own purposes for many years, which is why Trump got us out of it. So we have no, so we have no firsthand information that could have been available. Then simultaneously, uh, China destroys the viral samples. They disappear the journalists who were trying to warn the world about the magnitude of this possible crisis. Uh, physicians that were involved die under very questionable sets of circumstances in the hosp in hospitals. This is a very common ongoing scenario since the 1949 revolution in China, is that people don't, don't toe the line, uh, don't end up uh, just losing a policy battle. They end up disappearing. And, you know, so then, so he made a good effort on that. And again, no cooperation. And by the way, China, this is the China that is telling the world to this day that they are all about globalism. They are about bringing nations together, cooperation. We're all in this together. All political rhetoric defied by their actual practices. And then importantly, on January 30, Trump puts into place the travel ban against China, right? I mean, if you and I look into this right now, said, we've got this virus, we have no historical exposure to it. We have only a very rudimentary understanding of it. We don't have the samples to it. Uh, vaccines, those are great conceptually, but we can't develop a vaccine without that. And um, 
you would you would have you would focus on stop the stop the bleeding. It's like rule number one to any crisis, right? I mean, uh, don't dig deeper. So Trump goes to put the travel ban into effect, and of course, that there begins really the begin the beginning of Tony Fauci's the series of absolutely incredible, uh, despicable, sickening, uh, misguided statements. He opposes his travel ban. No, travel, you can't stop this with travel bans. Well, of course, that's exactly how you stop it. You stop people from coming into the country who are infected, which again is a lesson they haven't learned in their open border policy, where we have individuals arriving from Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, predominantly, who are a large, fairly sizable percentage of whom are infected and are infected with variants. Um, so, so Trump gets that one right, Fauci wrong. Then you go through this whole thing on the therapeutics, right? Um, and now China's into motion, according to this report issued yesterday in the largest cover-up in human history, as, as Representative Mike, Michael McCall from Texas called it. Um, where they're, you know, actually actively engaged in disinformation campaign, trying to suggest that this really initiated on some U.S. military base. I mean, look at the magnitude of damage we've done to this country and politically to those who are in control. It's inconceivable. Uh, and yet the 50 cent army, which, you know, puts all these little rebuttal uh, tweets mm. on I noticed just keeps keeps attacking everything I put out there saying no it really you know they it's just like a drip 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 effect where you raise enough doubt in the minds particularly of those who aren't close to it that people say well it could have been this could have been that no it's, this is like pretty clear of what it was uh but we didn't you're right you are you raise a very good point because we didn't have the, the we should have had a national intel consensus that would have, because that was one of the other things Trump did. Remember, in one of the Rose Garden speeches, he, he was saying, "I'm, you know, I'm ordering an, a comprehensive investigation as to the origins of this, and of uh, the CCP's follow-up and Xi Jinping's follow-up to it." Um, and of course, they lied to the World Health Organization then on January 14th, I believe, uh, saying there was no evidence of human-to-human -human transmission when we had satellite imaging showing people falling down on the street from COVID, showing the hospitals in Wuhan being completely um, uh, overloaded with patient flow and uh, crematoriums filling up with uh, uh, patients deceased from COVID and firsthand testimony that this was an out of the control, out of control uh, and hugely uh, infectious emerging pandemic. So you think just in terms of how many of these 4 million plus lives globally would have been saved if they had taken the complete opposite approach. So, you know, we're right. If we're, if you and I are running the country, we say, wow, whatever happened in this Wuhan Institute, whether this thing was consciously released almost as an act of biowarfare or whether it accidentally released or whether an individual was infected and that launched the, the, the origin, for, set that aside for the second. That still remains in my judgment yet to be completely resolved or, or full consensus around it. But we had responsibility for the release of this. The best and most constructive role you could play in this global citizenship role that they like to depict would be 
to be fully transparent. Say, CDC, come on in. World Health Organization, come on in. In fact, anyone who's got any expertise on this, come on in. We got to contain this. You get the best, you get the best policy guidance that you can. Um, you take those steps. You work with other countries. You cooperate fully. Instead, to this day, um, they have not allowed in independent inspectors. Uh, the one inspector that they did allow in, Peter Daszak, has been has had to recuse himself because of all of his uh, financial conflicts, uh, long-standing with uh, being paid by by China for mm. his work with the Wuhan Institute and whatnot. And that's the reality of kind of like where we are, I think, on that issue. So I'll push back slightly there. They were in the UN, I don't know, a few months ago, and they said, if you want to come out to the Uyghurs, if you want to come out, look at the Uyghurs, come on out anytime. It's more or less what they said at the UN. Not a sincere offer, though. Yeah, well, but this is the problem I have. I don't think it's a sincere offer either. But what you have to do is what you have to do is you have to say, we're making 16 planes available. We're loading up all of our best people. We're sending them today. Thank you, China. Thank you so much. But no one actually does that. And this is where we talk about all these games and all this posturing and we get mad at China. I, I, China, listen, we know what China is going to do. Uh, we know how they handle stuff. We, on this side of the pond, when China says come, you load up the plane and you go. And then they say you can't come. And then you, you turn around and say, guys, we tried. You said we could come. You didn't let us. But no one actually takes them up when they, when they play this game and they push back and they kind of they kind of they almost punk you and you're and we're like, oh, okay, well, well let's say we come, we're gonna get a committee together, and then you don't go. I don't I, I agree it's not a sincere offer, but you have to expose that over and over and over again because they are giving out if you're concerned that they're the greatest threat in the world, we can talk about that, then you have to handle it in a way that you expose them in this manner. And we don't do that. And that's whether that's Trump, or that's Biden, or that's you know, Obama or Bush or Clinton or whomever. That to me, that gets to the core of the of, of the of the political elite class is that they operate in this realm where they think they're playing. They all think they're playing forty chess. And to your point about the bureaucracy, real quick, I haven't mentioned this on the podcast in a while. John Bolton's book on Trump, I swear the man didn't read his own words <laughs> because some of the things he says about himself, I don't think he realized. But anyways, he attributes Rex Tillerson's failure to exactly what you described. So if you go read. Bolton's book about Tiller, uh, he talks about Rex Tillerson and why he failed. It's exactly what you described about the bureaucracy and not cleaning it out top to bottom. Well, so ponder the ponder the issue of the Iran agreement, right? That was mm -hmm. probably maybe arguably the largest foreign policy promise that Trump made in the 2016 campaign was that this was the worst, you know, diplomatic deal in the history of diplomacy. Uh, you know, all the way back to you know, basically the Greeks, and that we were going to get. The United States out of it because you know we gave them billions of dollars. They're still engaged in the development of nuclear weapons. They're still engaged in global terrorism, and they still consider the U.S. the great Satan and and want bad things for us. Um, we had no real ability to monitor or enforce that agreement. They would they precluded in the agreement our ability to enter any of their military sites where they would logically be developing nuclear weapons. And then in the non-military sites, I think you had to give them like 28 days conveniently, like just enough time for them to clean up any evidence of what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And as the intel that's come out, both by the Iranian opposition and the Israelis and our own intel, 
they have continued to enrich uranium at levels that are consistent with the, with an active nuclear weapons development program. So we gave them billions of dollars in cash, by the way, because that's how you don't pay terror. That's how you pay terrorists. Wasn't it their money though? Wasn't it their money we'd taken from well, them in the seventies? Yeah, this is a very important distinction. Uh, 1979 revolution, we froze these accounts of the Shah, right? Who was deposed and, and another act of bad American foreign policy because Carter, felt that the Shah's human rights abuses were inexcusable and that we needed to sanction him. So we sanctioned him. He was an ally, a flawed ally of the United States of America, which was a very common genre of government during the Cold War. And, you know, individuals who had many flaws, but were friends. And instead we got a uh, regime that is even more egregiously violating of human rights and now an outspoken enemy which is one of the big conclusions that you reach when you look at how carter handled human rights issues versus how reagan handled human rights issues carter in nicaragua and iran maybe being the two examples but not the only ones isolated uh you know both of these both of these friendly governments samosa in nicaragua and the shah and ended up in the case of Nicaragua with a communist regime cooperating with the Soviets and Cubans and wholly disregarding of human rights, just as even worse than Samosa. And of course the Ayatollah and the Mullahs are you know, right up there in the top three of human rights abusing countries in the world. So human rights didn't, didn't improve. Our leverage with these countries is completely diminished and we've got two enemies when we had when they were both two friends. Then Ray, if you look at the way Reagan say handled the the replacement of uh, in the Philippines with Marcos, um, who was a wholly corrupt, you know, autocrat, also engaged in human rights abuses. Once he made the decision, you know, this guy really is not in the best interests of either the Philippines or the or the U.S. relationship or U.S. interests or the world generally should probably go. Um, the the uh, he takes a very studied approach of looking into what that succession process would look like, what would come next, and because of that, we don't have, you know, a hostile, irrational government in the Philippines. We have a very friendly, and much more accountable. Uh, liberalized government, still imperfect, but but vastly improved from what it was over Marcos, which is maybe one of the great untold realities in this completely contrasting left versus right uh, debate of, this, of the crucially important era of the 70s and 80s in, in American foreign policy. And the final point I'd say is, you know, it's this issue if you just send them to China. I want to, you can kind of look this up. Trump had CDC employees on planes ready to to depart for Wuhan when in, when they were told by the Chinese do not send planes here you will not be granted uh, an ability to land them and we are not granting any access so we did there and on the Uyghurs if you look rhetorically at what their position is and what they've even told Biden they said, look, this is a mat this is an internal matter of China and none of your business. None of the UN's business, none of the United States business, none of the world's business. And of course, that completely contradicts with positions that they're taking with um, you know, um, uh, in the Anchorage Summit.
where uh, we had to listen to their absurd condom, you know, attempt at, I guess, moral equivalency uh, in, in contem condemning the United States of America, which frankly should have been the end of that summit right there in my view. <laughs> So yeah, I, I don't think that they would have ever let us when they when they said it in the UN. I don't think for a second they ever would have let us. But the, how you counter propaganda is by exposing it, and and you have to go through great links because they're going to you know the one thing when you get on Twitter and you follow the Chinese ambassadors, they all have the same message, whether it's true or false. And I, always, I have a buddy of mine, um, and me and him kind of go back and forth on China policy and stuff. And I always joke around when you're dealing with China. Um, from the Western perspective, we like to pick and choose which thing that China says we believe that they actually are saying is true. You know? <laughs> so yeah. he, you know, Xi Jinping comes out and says, well, you know, they're going to go, they're going to decouple from the U S and this, and he'll send me that. And I'm like, well, hold on over here. They're saying this. And so it's always kind of funny to, to, to try to decipher what the Chinese are doing, because we all know on some level, they're putting out vast amounts of propaganda and trying to decipher through it um, makes it tough. I know we're getting to clock here. So I do have a few more questions. Um, I did want to hit that you brought up. Um, you, you talked about foreign policy quite a bit. One of the reasons for my departure from the Republican Party conservatism was the constant foreign intervention. Um, I don't think that's necessarily uh, a moral thing that we should be doing. Um, I don't think it's necessarily a constitutional thing we should be doing. Um, I've heard you talk about it. How do you balance that? Um, because we've been in Afghanistan, Iraq, and all over the place. Um, there's a lot of dead bodies at the U.S.'s hands, and, it, it's, and it's as a U.S. citizen, I'm not even sure who tries to fall on this. I'm not even sure. I always use this example to people. Um, I'm not picking on Trump here. It's just he was the person who said it. Uh, at one of the state of the unions, he had a lady up in the balcony, and he said her husband was a Navy SEAL who died in Yemen. And my question to people who are for the wars, I say, what was he doing in Yemen? And not, you know, someone like yourself would probably have an idea. But most people are like, well, where's Yemen? And what? I have no idea what we're doing there. And that's how crazy our foreign policy from my perspective has gotten to where we're in countries where people can't even identify a map. I'm not even sure why they're there or we're supporting the Saudis. Um, so give me what's your stance on U S foreign policy as far as interventionism um, and, and how should we handle that? Because the China is tied up to that, but also the middle East. Well, I think there's three forces at play here. Okay. One is an, is what is an, um, you know, an ongoing debate between interventionists who feel you go and um, intervene in cases where even modest national security threats are emerging, where human rights crises are threatening human lives, and you put American resources, including American lives, in jeopardy when you do that. That's one school of thought. Um, it defines neoconservatism for the most part. I believe they would consider that fair. Uh, and their position would be that the uh, costs that, on a, you know, in a cost-benefit ratio, that the benefits exceed the cost. I think the value of Trump was that, firstly, he was the first national Republican political figure to acknowledge what should now be self-evident, that the 2001 um, I mean, the March 2003 in, uh, engagement Iraq. in um, Iraq was a um, colossal error, not even a little bit of an error. Catastrophic. And again, who was behind that? Well, our intelligence force, the same departments that basically perpetuated the lie of Russia's, you know, collusion in the, with Trump and the campaign. 
um, whether or not there was an agenda behind that or whether, whether it was a, legi a legitimate Intel oversight, you know, you can't dispute the, ram the major ramifications that emerged for it. And just to walk through, I mean, the obvious things are the loss of lives, mm -hmm. um, you know, thousands uh, between um, thousands in Iraq, but then also you again, it's kind of this Carter era where you remove removing Saddam, even once it was clear that he didn't have weapons of mass destruction on the surface to someone looking on might say, well, you know, he's kind of a bad actor um, and getting rid of him is a good thing. Well, and again, in a conceptual way, maybe, but you it depends on what comes next and and what we learned when Saddam was removed is something that should have been self-evident, even the most you know, even the most entry level student of Iraq, that Iraq is an extraordinarily diverse and complicated country with many varying power and influence forces. And that one of the reasons Saddam was successful was not his good looks and charm, but his ability to keep this whole puzzle together when, when natural momentum would have driven it as it ultimately did in the different parts so no isis pre uh, march i mean there was isis but not as any major force i mean isis ultimately expands its influence in iran and syria and uh iran the really are undeniably in my view the greatest threat in the region uh finally put at bay not engaged in iraq starts to have both a presence, Soleimani, behind much of that with the support for uh, with uh, his Quds forces in, 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 and direct responsibility, by the way, for the killing of about, Ameri about 800 American servicemen uh, during that um, conflict, and uh, the militias that are now still an ongoing problem. And I uh, was speaking with an Iraqi television network about a week ago, and I raised this point, which I don't know why more people aren't raising, is that the American departure from Iraq should be totally welcomed, and, and it should have been done a long time ago. But, you know, so should the Iran, Iran's cessation of support for these militias. And, and it's like almost, I don't, there's really not any public pressure being exerted on them. They're just as, they're real, really, when you drill down and look at, well, why has the U.S., you know, why don't we completely get out on day one of the Trump administration? Because these militias really were legitimate threats to the sovereignty of the country, the stability of the country, and innocent human life. And the argument was made, and it was a compelling one, that progress needed to be made on that before we could get out. And then you look at Afghanistan real quickly, and I just have to tell you, I'm, I'm really close to this issue and have been since the 1980s. I was a key champion and supporter of aiding the Mujahideen and of the Reagan doctrine, as you may know, <clears throat> went out with many of these forces. Um, and was and I was very aware also of the, the, the split between the Afghan and Arab Mujahideens. The Arab Mujahideens ultimately went on to become Al-Qaeda. The uh, Afghan Mujahideen, uh, which was led by some really very bold, brave, and largely pro-American forces, you know, pretty much decimated um, in in some of the pre-9/11 efforts. 
but we're now looking at the longest war in American history in Afghanistan, right? Um, 4,400 lives lost, I think, roughly, in Afghanistan. Trillions of dollars spent, as Trump correctly pointed out. We could have rebuilt the infrastructure of our whole country like 10 times over for what we've spent in these conflicts. And um, look at what the Biden administration is doing. They are... They are scat. They are operating. They are urgently trying to get out of Afghanistan. Anyone who had any connection to the U.S. government or our efforts there, because while they haven't said this, but I will. Every indication is the Taliban is not going to keep their word in any of these agreements, and they are pushing on for to take control of that country again militarily. So you know, worst case scenario. We end up right back after all of this, the loss of life, you know, all of those brave Americans that are in Lot 60 in Arlington Cemetery, um, some of the greatest Americans of our lifetime, bold, patriotic, brave, you know, incredibly successful usually, who gave their lives to this cause, are gonna end up uh, seeing the Taliban flag rise again over Kabul and uh, see a regime again that, you know, to, as far as I can tell, seems as committed to disruption and terror and domestic suppression as it ever has been. I mean, what they're doing in the way of their random killings of people and things like this are just sickening. I mean, to the point where I don't even bother communicating a lot of it because it's just, I'm, I think every American's aware of it and it's just so uninspiring and, and depressing, you know? Okay, well, we covered a lot of ground. I think we could probably go for another four or five hours and just get the scratch service. Um, so first off, I appreciate appreciate you coming on. Um, I'd love to get you on again and just kind of unpack some more of this stuff because you, you're covering so much ground, but I didn't want to just drill down too deep on some of these issues, but... Um, Thank you for coming on. Um, where can people find you and what you have going on today? And then leave us with this. If the Tea Party still is of interest to people, what should they do? Okay, so the best way to follow me, which is also a good way to follow Tea Party um, activities and actions, on Twitter is my name, one word, Michael Johns. Um, on Facebook, Michael Johns Tea Party. And on YouTube, um, youtube.com backslash Michael Johns. And then I'm on most of the other emerging, many emerging conservative friendly sites uh, now. And I have a link on my Twitter page to those as, as well. So yeah, we'll link all that uh, in the show notes for people. Uh, they can find you. Okay. Thank you so much thank for, your you for all you're doing, Ryan. Appreciate yeah. it. Appreciate you. Um, and, and it's uh, you know, an honor to connect with you and, Good speaking with you. Likewise. Thank you so much. Listeners, we have several more shows planned this week, and so we'll talk to you.